Good morning. It's good. Whoa, I like that. This is a way crew. You guys have had coffee and stuff already. Uh, it is early, but I love that. Uh, I get to hang out with you guys. My name's Kyle. As they said, I'm the lead pastor of our Irvine campus of Mariners, and it is an honor and a privilege for me to be here with you guys. I'm usually here a few times a year, and it's always fun. I get to meet a bunch of new people, see a bunch of new faces, and some familiar ones as well. Uh, but I love what God's doing here in this community. Caleb talked to me this week. He said, hey, uh, I got to go in. I just got to have a minor procedure done. I'm not sure how I'm going to be in terms of study for the weekend. Can you cover it? And I said, sure. But I said, I want to make sure that people know that you're okay. Can you just shoot me a picture or something? And this is what he sent. So <laughs> apparently his thumb is doing great. And it, we'll see a whole body attached to him next week. But I, I think he's, he's drugged, right, Hillary? But he's, he's doing fine. So anyway, just say, hey, your thumb looked great last weekend. I'm, I'm really glad you sent us that picture. Uh, we're continuing today in our Christmas Is series. Last weekend, you guys got to hear from Graham as he sort of launched us into this season, right? That it's more than survival, but that peace is truly possible, even in the midst uh, of the craziness. And who is the, I have not started shopping yet, folks in the room? Right, so for you, peace is becoming less possible as the dates keep ticking. How many of you are totally done shopping? Anybody? Who's the over? The overachievers, I love it. We have a room of those people. Uh, decorations up, everybody, how are we doing with that? Everybody, trees and lights and all that. Uh, I was doing uh, some decorating outside, putting up the last of our lights. We have this big tree in our front yard, and I was uh, asking my wife to help me with that. And peace was not possible in that moment as she and I were just finding our way to survival and decorating. Um, but either way, we're making it. Uh, you know what confuses me about cr the Christmas season, though, is uh, a little bit, is the whole idea of Santa. In particular, for me growing up, I was petrified of Santa Claus. Like, the whole idea of going and taking a picture with him and, like, sitting on his lap and all that was like, you know, giving him a wish list and telling this guy what you want. And apparently what I've learned is that's genetic. Because this is my daughter. And so it gets passed along, whatever you're expecting. And that was her a few years ago. She's actually turning nine today. So just actually two days ago, we had this picture taken. So you can overcome those fears, but what I haven't been able to overcome is the confusion. Like, is this okay to torment our kids in this way and say, here, you know, we tell them their whole lives don't talk to strangers. Here's a total stranger in a red suit with a creepy beard. Go sit on his lap and just give him your wish list. Tell him what you'd love to have for Christmas. I mean, is that even, and we pay for this. I mean, these pictures cost us like 20 bucks or something. It's the dumbest thing in the world. But we do it. I did this. And it's, but it's confusing. And what's interesting to me is I feel like there's also this subtle thing that gets woven in. And that's the idea, was, is hope. I mean, is hope this idea that it's like sitting on Santa's lap and you're just giving this wish list out there? And so I think we start confusing maybe wishes and, and hope. I mean, what's the difference in the two? Is there really in the, any difference in the two? I mean, as a culture... I think we have a hard time differentiating because we use the word hope a lot. Hey, hope for the best. Keep your hopes up. Hey, I hope you have a good day. I hope that, or worse yet, it turns bad. Nah, you better not get your hopes up. You know what I mean? You start throwing out all these phrases. Culture's really familiar with this word. It's like we've taken it and we've made it small. We've kind of minimized it. We've made it like uh, uh, sitting on Santa's lap and just wishing and hoping I get that list or that bike or that razor or that Xbox or whatever we want for Christmas. We've made it small, or we've made it this lofty concept that isn't even attainable unless you're a kid sitting on somebody's lap. And I mean, what is, Bobby, for you, you're going, what is telling me to hope really do to get me out of the difficulty that I'm in anyway? 
Like when people are in really desperate places, maybe some of you are this morning, and you're going, really? You just keep your hopes up. It's going to be, I mean, what, is, what did hope ever do for me? You're thinking, really? Hope? Where, where should I put my hope? Why? Why should I hope? I mean, hope and hope is hopeless. There's nothing there. I've hoped my whole life. And look at where I find myself. And is hope enough? And, I, you know, I agree with you. Hope isn't enough. That kind of hope. Because I think there's something so much more profound in the word, in the way that we've minimized it, in the way culture has robbed it and stolen it and made it small. And that kind of hope isn't hope at all. I've never met anybody who cited the power of Santa, right, for all of their dreams coming true. And, like, you know, I just made the right list every year, and I just hoped, and, man, my life's amazing. Never met anybody. Never met anybody who said that. You see, hope is only as powerful as that to which it's attached. Hope is only as powerful as that to which it's attached to. And the Bible, we hear about hope. Look at this. Paul's blessing the people in Romans 15 says this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe there's more to hope than just wishful thinking. Maybe there's more to hope than just these pithy little phrases that we toss out to one another. Maybe we fully don't understand it. Maybe hope can actually reach down into our lives and the reality in which we live in this world. The brokenness, the pain, the land of cruel breakups, horrible mistakes, broken marriages, decisions, addictions, secrets. Maybe hope can penetrate that and give us something that lets us look beyond whatever the circumstances that we're living in that cause us to feel alone and afraid, cause us to feel like there is no hope. Maybe hope can actually bring something profound. It just depends on what it's detached to. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I believe that every single person here this morning um, is not here by accident. And God, their lives are not accidental. And so I believe that already you are speaking to them. I believe that they're already getting a, a, a sense and a picture maybe of who you are and what you sound like and what you might want to speak into their lives. And so I pray, God, for um, all of us in this room that we would hear your voice, that we would hear it above the noise of this world and the distractions. God, the way that we make things small, that we would hear your voice, powerful and loving, and that it would reshape our idea of hope. God, for those of us in this room that find ourselves in desperate places, hopeless places, God, I believe that you want to sweep through their hearts with a sense of hope, that there is something bigger that they can attach themselves to, even in the midst of this world and this season and this life, and give them, God, a sense of hope as they move forward. I pray in the power of your name, Amen. Take out your outlines and grab your Bible if you brought it, or you can flip through technology or whatever it is. We're going to go uh, in a couple passages today. The first one is Psalm 130. So kind of right in the middle of your Bible, take a shot at it, Psalm 130. And the second passage we'll cover later is Hebrews 6. Uh, but we're going to start in Psalm 130. And let me give you some background on this before we jump in. Uh, this is one of the Psalms of Ascent. This would have been sung 
uh, by the Jewish pilgrims, God's chosen people, as they made their pilgrimage to Jerusalem, the holy city. And they would have done this a few times a year for special feasts. And so this would have been a song that they sung on the way. It's kind of like a road trip playlist. Any of you guys road trip people? Right? I'm a road trip guy. I grew up, family vacations were always like in a car or in a bu- just traveling. Like we never stopped anywhere. We would just drive past things and go, oh, there's the Grand Canyon. I bet it's amazing. And we'd keep going. <laughs> but one of the things about road trips, right, is you always listen to music. Road trips have this distinct sound to them. And, you know, for me, vacations as a kid, one of the things I remember distinctly, uh, my dad in particular was a huge country music fan. And so, and I'm talking real country music guys, like the George Jones and Merle Haggard and Gatlin Brothers and Linda Ronstadt. See, you guys are like, what? You're in, what? That's not country. That's country music. (laughs) You know, and then it progressed for me. I am now a road trip guy with my family. And so, you know, all through junior high and high school, it was Oingo Boingo and Howard Jones and the Smiths and you two. Anybody remember those? The good old stuff? Hootie and the Blowfish? Anybody? So anyway, but music and singing and road trip playlists, what what does music do? It sets the tone. It creates an emotion. It kind of aims our hearts at something. It's it's why we sing and worship God. It's to help us remember. And so this is a song that these people would have been singing three times a year as they went to the holy city of Jerusalem to celebrate or to interact with God. Let's look at what they say. Psalm 130, first four verses. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Hold on, just pause right there for a second. And what do you learn already? Out of the depths, Lord, hear my cry. You get this sense that these people are drowning. They're painting this picture that we know this world is stormy. It can feel overwhelming, that the wind is blowing, that the waves are high. God, out of these depths can you even hear me? And that's the season we're in, I think, in so many ways. And if you're not there circumstantially, Christmas can be like that, right? Christmas is an amplifier, especially for pain. So when you're moving through this season in particular, desperation just gets heightened. So these are people that understand pain. They understand tension. They understand what it means to cry out. Verse 3, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So let's look at these verses just for a moment. Here's what's important about this. This is the beginning of how hope becomes a Santa wish. This is how hope gets minimized and starts to shrink. Because it becomes something all of a sudden that it it becomes like where the nice receive stuff and the naughty don't receive anything. This is where hope starts to shrink and starts to depend on us instead of something bigger and more consistent. And it's the soul-robbing experience of regret. And they're talking here about sin. And I'm talking regret not in the sense of, oh, man, I wore the wrong shoes today. Or, you know, I, I should have gotten the fish instead of the steak. That's not regret. Like, that's just, you made a poor choice. I'm talking the idea that when we look back at our lives, the overwhelming sense of shame or guilt, or that even that one decision that I made has somehow cast this shadow forward that I could never undo, that my life is defined by one bad moment, that is regret. And so we live in this, I don't even know if I deserve hope anymore. 
What does that look like? And it's like if you, Lord, if you kept track of these sins, of these regrettable moments, who could ever stand before you? And all of us get a sense of what that looks like. We're all in the same boat. We're all full of regret. We all have things we wish we could do over and do differently, choices we could make. Nobody gets to stand as they're without regret or sin. And sin, as you know, it's just, it's the biblical word, right? We all know sin. It's the brokenness. It's the pain. It's the hurt. It's the poor choices. It's our passive and active role in creating distance and relationship, in breaking things, in hurting other people, and in hurting ourselves. That's sin. We all understand that. We all know what that looks like, and this is what they're talking about. And that's where hope starts to shrink, because we think somehow it depends on us. And it says, but with you, there's forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The word reverence right there is that so you may be held in awe. And the interesting thing is, uh, the, it's the acknowledgement that forgiveness rather than punishment is what allows us to see God in awe. Right? Because all of us, if you heard or, or described, many of us grew up with the view, and maybe some of us hold it today, that God is this judgmental, condemning, overwhelmingly powerful God that is shaking his finger at you and just can't wait to punish you for what you've done. I'm just waiting. Come, come on, get close, because I can't wait to send you to your room. I can't wait to And that's not God. You see, they have this sense of reverence, this acknowledgement that, oh, God, it's your forgiveness. It's your love. It's your mercy. It's your tenderness that overwhelms us, that causes us to be in wonder and awe at who you are, not to tremble in fear over this sin and over this regret. So we have this picture of these desperate people walking through this world that feels like an overwhelmingly stormy ocean, feels like they're drowning, and then they're constantly aware of their own brokenness, of their regrets, of their sin, of the pain. And then in verse 5, it says this. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Okay, that's not a misprint. I didn't like, I, did he copy and paste that wrong? No, it actually says it twice. More than watchmen wait in the morning. So you know it's important. But here's the deal. I wait. My whole being waits. What's the author trying to convey? More than watchmen wait for the morning. And he says it twice because he's underscoring how important it is. And here's what's important to know. It's not that they were worried about if the morning would come. They're not wondering if the sun's going to come up tomorrow. That's not what it means. I mean, did any of you go to bed going, oh, man, what's going to happen if the sun doesn't come up tomorrow? <laughs> I mean, it's like there's this sense of faithfulness and consistency and dependability that we see. Even in creation, that's what they're leaning against. What they're describing here is there was this eager anticipation of what tomorrow would bring. It's the sense of wonder and of, oh, the morning tomorrow will be beautiful. I can't wait for the next day. And I like the idea of, of the hard work. I wait. My whole being is waiting, like the watchman. And it's the hard, look, the hard work of looking, the hard work of waiting. It's not passive. It's something that just you wrestle with. There's, there's work involved. And I think about this. I was thinking about my kids. And it, it's, it's exactly the opposite of what I feel like my kids do when I send them looking for something. 
So I don't know if you have kids, but for me, I, both my boys, they play sports. And I feel like equipment and uniforms somehow get scattered all over our house and our garage. And every time there's a practice or a game or something, we are looking for something. Or more importantly, I'm looking for something. And they're just like, hey, can you go look for, you know, a couple weeks ago, it was the blue jersey. So there's a blue jersey and a gray jersey. And I always say, guys, take everything, just put it in your bag so you know where it is, right? Gloves and hats and jerseys. So do you think they do that? They never do that. So there's always things scattered around. So I'm like, hey, you got to have your blue jersey. I can't find it. So I'm like, you got to go find it. So I go outside to do something. I come back. And it's like, do you find your blue jersey? No. And I'm like, well, did you look? Yeah. What you, what'd you do? Well, I just, you know. Did you just stand in the middle of the room and turn around? And it's like, if it didn't hit, jump out at you, it was like, and they're like, well, kind of. I'm like, well, that's not looking. That's not like eagerly hard work of looking. And so I went, and I actually found it in the bag, buried in some compartment. It's like, this is looking. Go look in your bag. Go look in your room. Go look in the laundry. Go look in your drawers. Go look under your bed. Go, go do the work of looking. And I love that that's what they're describing here. You see, hope is something that must be looked for. It doesn't just come to you. You've got to look for it. You've got to tune into it. You've got to be look, and you have to know where to look, right? Is it on Santa's lap? Is it in culture? Is it in ourselves? Is it in a relationship? Is it in somebody else? Where's hope? You've got to look. And I love that sense of anticipation. And I love that they're aiming it, the hard work of looking at something. These three were in, in his word. And in his word is what they're looking for with all kinds of anticipation. And we understand words. We understand the idea of a message, right, coming our way. Uh, uh, and they're looking for this message that's different than the messages that they've been hearing all throughout their life. We understand that. We know those messages. We know those words that have sp been spoken over us and into us all through our lives. Words of insufficient, words of failure. You're not good enough. You're not a good dad. You're not a good mom. You can't even provide for your family. You're a failure. You'll never amount to anything. You are unworthy. You are unimpressive. You are unlovable. Those kinds of words. And you see what happens is that's how hope starts to get really dim. And it starts to get small. And those unwords, unworthy, unlovable, unvaluable, you see, here's what's so twisted about those. When we embrace those, the problem is, all of a sudden, God, our creator, our father, well, he can't even penetrate that. Because even God in his power and in his love and in his grace and in his wisdom, well, God, you don't understand, I'm, I'm unlovable. So it's not that even you wouldn't want to. God, you can't because I'm unlovable. You see, we understand those messages. We understand those words. And so did they. They understood that. And they were looking for something bigger and powerful. And that's how we start acting out of regret and acting out of sin. We need a hope bigger than the messages that this world has screamed at us from the time we were kids. We need a hope bigger than the messages of despair and the ocean that we feel like we're drowning in that wishes on Santa's lap or in one another in this world can never provide. We need that kind of a hope. Because remember, hope is only as big as the power to which it's connected to. Look what it says in verse 7. Israel, put your hope 
in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Put your hope in God. You have a desperate people aware of the messages that have weighed them down going through life, aware of their own regrets, their own sin, their own brokenness, their own failure, their own distance. And all of a sudden they're going, this is what they're singing. Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in God. There's a place for hope. It's not a wish that's granted by God for just the not naughty people in the world or people that are good enough. But there's a hope that comes from a forgiving God. That awe, that wonder, that grace that gets extended, that's reliable as the sun coming up today. That kind of grace, that kind of hope, that kind of forgiveness that's available. It's a song they would sing to remind themselves of this hope that they were going for in God. Something they would look forward to, to the arrival of hope. And that's profound because we're in the season of Advent where we're looking forward to something. Our hearts are pulled to something. This is before Christmas and the arrival of Jesus had ever happened. This is what they were singing. This is what they were proclaiming. This is what they were looking forward to. This is what they were longing for, the hope of a Savior that would come. So what does it look like after that Savior has come? What does it look like for us today as we sit here? What does it look like for those of us that know Christmas is in the past and we get to hold on to it in a very different kind of way? Flip over to Hebrews chapter 6. This is a letter written to Hebrew Christians. And that's an interesting thing because these are the people... Um, that would have believed that Jesus is the Messiah, that would have believed that he is who he says he is. And so these would have been people that have, would, would have been shoved away from their community. They would have also felt lonely and afraid and isolated. They would have felt desperate because they're wondering at this point, hundreds of years after Jesus, is this really true? What does this look like? We feel alone. How can we be sure? Many of these people were not eyewitnesses, just like us. They just had a book and some people that they were putting their hope in. And so this writer to this church in, in the Hebrews, he says, listen, I'm writing this to you to have hope, to be encouraged. This is what he says to you today. Hebrews 6, verses 19 and 20. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Everybody say, Melchizedek. Melchizedek. See, big, we'll just call him Mel from here on out, but at least you know I can pronounce that word. That's a beautiful thing. And this passage clearly, uh, it seems to start very simply, and then it gets, what? What, what does all this mean? I mean, I... It enters the inner sanctuary and a curtain and our forerunner and Jesus and a high priest and this Mel guy. Like, what does that mean? The people would have understood this. This is rich in Jewish history. This would have been startling for them. They would have gone, oh, that's right. That's right. It would have settled their soul in a profound way. They would have found amazing encouragement and hope to understand this. So we just came out of this. It describes the atonement process. So one of the... Um, one of the ascents that people made to Jerusalem was for the atoning of sin. Remember that regret and that sin and that brokenness and that distance? You guys remember that? Everything we feel and experience. Okay, so one time a year, one man would cover the sins with God. 
And there was this temple that was built. And this temple had a progressive set of chambers to keep some distance between the presence of God, which was the Ark of the Covenant. Anybody see Indiana Jones? Huh? All right, so you got it, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence and the power of God. And you know what? They're not far off. Because if you would have come in contact with that, there's stories in the Bible of people touching it, Richard, and they just poop. They would have just face-melting experience. It happened. Like, it's real. So they had to keep some distance because God is perfect. God is powerful. And so he did it as a way to protect us from him. He's going, you can't come close to me. This is how perfect and powerful and holy I am. It's like, I mean, think about it. He created the sun, right? Anybody been sunburned? And think about the distance between us and the sun. I mean, he went, and there's the sun. So think about that. So there's this progressive chamber, and one time a year, the high priest would go in, and they would tie a rope with, like, bells around it in case he, like, dropped dead in there. They could drag him out. I'm serious. So one time, one day a year, he'd go in there, and he would carry the blood of a perfect animal, perfect, spotless, the best animal they could find, and he'd sprinkle the blood over the ark, and that was to cover the sin and the regret and the pain and the brokenness of the people for that year. And sometimes he would fall dead, and they'd pull him out. And when they dragged him out, the people would walk away for another year, carrying the weight of the regret, of the shame, of the sin, knowing that there was still that distance between them and God. But if he walked out and he was standing, you know what would happen? Did you guys see Polar Express? Okay, so you know how like the end when Santa walks out, and like everybody goes, wah, and they just go nuts. Like that's what the people, imagine, like millions of people just erupting in joy because God had received the sacrifice. They had covered their sin and their regret. They were free for another year. But it wasn't complete because it was just one man and just one day. And it wasn't complete because it didn't overwhelm the power of sin in their life. It didn't cover all of the sin for the year and everything to come. They had to do this over and over and over and over again. So that is the process that they're describing, that inner sanctuary, the holy of holies, the power and the presence of God. And here's what he's saying. God knew that we could never get close, and that, guys, is the mystery and the power of Christmas and the wonder of God, that God, the powerful God that creates the sun in his hands, comes and he shows up. He knows that we can never get close. So what does he do? I'm going to come to you. I will get close to you, and I'll find a way to do it that won't destroy you. And so what does he do? He shows up as a baby at Christmas. God in the flesh. You see, Jesus was very clear. Some of you are going, you know, I'm not sure about God and Jesus and the church. That's okay, but Jesus was clear on who he is, and then you just get to decide whether you believe it to be true or not. He said, I and the Father are one. Everything I do is for him and with him and by his power and by his strength. I came so that people could see the character of, of my Father, the character of God. And he was constantly then, what, born as a baby, humble, stepped down to become just like us, to understand the world we live in, the tension, the temptation 
The sadness, the grief, the isolation, the being alone, even the fear. He understands all that because he experienced it. He was fully human in the midst of that. And then what? He lives this life and he's constantly talking about this kingdom of God, the power and the presence of God available to you, to everybody today. It's a new day. That old way, the inner sanctuary, all that systems that's gone, that's done forever. Now you get to walk in freedom. And I am going to pay for your sins. I'm going to pay for your regret. I don't want you to have to sing these songs every single year over and over. I don't want you to make pilgrimages. I want it to be free and done forever. And so he shows up and he lives his life and he dies for every single one of us because blood had to cover sin to pay for that regret. And so that's what Jesus does. He's saying hope is here. Hope has arrived. And it's this eternal forever. It's no more wishful thinking. It's no more maybe the guy will come out. Because what did Jesus do? He came out. He was resurrected. There should be an eruption of joy. Our sins are paid for. And not only that, Jesus says, I overcame the power of sin in your life. So it's not just hoping that, oh, maybe that regret can go away. Maybe the sin will be paid for. Maybe I won't have to die. It's not just that. It's also that the power of sin in your life doesn't have to reign. There's a hope that's so much bigger and stronger. That's what he's saying at Christmas. And that's what Hebrews 6 is talking about. And it's saying when this curtain was torn, our forerunner, Jesus, which simply just means it's somebody who's what? In front of us. He's running a race that you never could, at a pace that you never could. How many of you are runners? You guys run? My wife is a runner. She, like six days a week runner. She was out before I left this morning runner, kind of runner. She runs at a pace I can't run. She run, it's like, and Jesus is saying, I am so far ahead of you. I've already done everything. To cover this, why won't you just walk in it? Just receive this kind of hope that's so much bigger. You see, hope doesn't have to be tethered to our regret or our sin or even our good works anymore. Hope isn't tethered to our performance because remember, hope is only as powerful as that to which it's attached. Hope is always attached to something. Even biblically, there's faith, there's hope, there's love. Hope is always attached to something. Hope is attached to something in your life. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's wishful thinking. Maybe it's being good enough. Maybe it's working really hard to try and earn God's favor or even the love of people around you. And what happens is, as soon as that starts to erode, what happens to our hope? It starts to erode with it. Hebrews 6 is saying there is a hope that is so much bigger and so much more powerful, a hope that is forever available for every single one of us, that kind of hope. And it says what? We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. And I want you to think about this picture that he's painting, because I think it's one all of us could understand. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, this hope, the hope in Jesus. We have this hope as an anchor for our soul, firm and secure. The boat that he's describing is your soul. The sea that he's describing is the world we live in. Sometimes calm, other times incredibly stormy, big waves. The anchor is Jesus. It's our hope. We have this hope. What does an anchor do? Holds a boat. Anchor holds a boat. We all know that. Every boat has an anchor. 
right? You go out, you drop anchor. It's crazy to me when you see what happens, even in the midst of crazy storms. They set an anchor. Boats don't move. The bow just turns, right, into the wind. It just keeps moving, and it holds. And he says, this isn't one that's going to drift, and it's going to pull, and it's going to get washed up. It says it's firm, and it's secure. We have an anchor. So let me ask you this question. Is the anchor holding the boat, or is the boat holding the anchor? The anchor's part of the boat, right? I mean, it's attached to it. But what's holding the boat? The anchor. So are you holding on to hope, or is hope holding on to you? Let me say it differently. Are you holding on to Jesus, or is Jesus holding on to you this morning? You see, I think a lot of people say, well, I got God. I know you got God. But the problem is, is how strong are you? How strong are you? When the waves get high, when the wind starts to blow, are you going to be able to hold on? For me, for so long, I thought hope was like a rope that was dangling from heaven. And I had to jump to catch it, and then I had to hold on for all my life and climb. And the higher I got, the closer I got to God, and that was my performance. And I'm, I'm closer to God and I'm loving him, but the problem is I'm not that strong. I'm a broken human being that lives a life of brokenness and regret and sin, and I slip down and, oh, I'm hanging by a thread. That is not the kind of hope that he describes to us in Hebrews 6. Hope is an anchor for your soul. Hope is holding you. Hope pursues you. Some of you today probably have been trying to walk away from God for a long time. Some of you may be able to say, I'm, try I'm trying to shake God. You try and do something bad, and what happens? You hear that voice. Oh, come. that's hope holding you. Some of you in your most desperate places, when you're weeping, when you're sad, when you're alone, when you're full of regret and full of shame, you might just hear this little voice. It just says, I love you, and you're my child. That's hope holding you. There is a hope that's bigger than a wish. There is a hope that is stronger than the wishful thinking that this culture will tell you it is. There is a hope that holds you this morning regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in today and regardless of the choices you've made in the past and regardless of the decisions you're going to make in the future. Would you close your eyes for a second? What is your hope anchored to this morning? What is your hope attached to? Maybe today you find yourself drowning in regret or in shame or in guilt or in fear. There is a hope that is an anchor for your soul, firm and secure, and it is Jesus gift of Christmas, the gift of hope. Father, you know every single one of us today as we sit here before you. I pray that as we continue to listen to your voice of truth and of hope, God, that you would help us to respond wholeheartedly to trust you as the anchor for our life and our soul.